going to be turning to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5, uh, looking at verses 1 through 15. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians um, this, this new year and looking at the gospel and what it means and what we can learn from it and how we can walk deeper in it. And Paul's going to give us another level of that today in these first half of chapter 5. And so I'm trusting this is going to be helpful for you as it was for me this week. Um, I want to do a little, start it off here, I want to do a little interactive moment this morning. So are we all awake enough for that today? I know you lost an hour last night, but everybody good? Um, so when the culture, when the people outside of the church, when the people in our culture, when they think about Christianity, when they think about the church, what type of words would they use to describe Christianity? Give me one. Judgment. From the two people at the same time. That says something. Hypocrites. That's another one. What's another one? Louder. Narrow. Narrow-minded. Yep. What was that? Okay. Yep. Proud. Antiquated. Outdated. Killjoys. Conservative. Weak-minded. Yep. Unintelligent. Interestingly enough, one word that I don't ever really hear people describe Christianity with is freedom. Freedom. And yet, today in Scripture, Paul's going to tell us that freedom is actually at the heart of everything that Christianity is. People tend to think about Christianity as the opposite of that, right? That it's this restrictive um, list of rules and do's and don'ts, and you can do this and don't do that, and and you have to toe the line. They don't think of it as freedom. But today Paul's going to show us that in fact anything outside of Christ and outside of Christianity is actually bondage. And that only in Christ do we get to experience true freedom in the fullest sense. And he's going to show us how we can have freedom in Christ in three areas specifically today through faith. And so we want to dive into that, but even as we look at this freedom that we receive through faith in Christ, ultimately this freedom isn't just for us, it's meant to point us back to Him, the one who frees us and helps us to walk in this freedom that we have. And so that's the big thought this morning, Christ sets me free to live for Him. He sets me free, not just in general, but for a purpose that is to actually live for him through that freedom. So let's dive into verse 1 this morning. Chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the first thing we see today in the text is this. Number one, the first freedom is the hope of Christ frees me from hopeless works. The hope of Christ frees me from hopeless works. So Paul dives into verse 1. He says, For freedom, 
Christ has set us free. Or some translations say, for freedom, Christ has freed us. Interestingly enough, Paul uses freedom here both as the noun and the verb of that sentence. Right? It's all over. Meaning that freedom is both the means by which we experience the Christian life and it is the end by which we are pursuing in the Christian life is to be free in Christ. It's all about freedom. Freedom from some things and freedom to other things. And so he says, because of this, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Stand strong in your freedom in Christ, he says. Don't give it up. Don't tap out. Don't go back to the bondage. And he's going to say, show us three areas specifically where we need to live in the freedom of Christ. First, he says, if you accept circumcision. Now, always a bit of a weird, awkward topic in the church today, all right? Like, this, like we don't really get this whole thing because for us, it's just some elective surgery that you do at your kid's birth. Not a big deal either way. Your choice doesn't really mean a whole lot. But in Paul's day, it meant a lot because back then, Jews were really the only ones who practiced circumcision, right? Nobody else really did this. It was, it was unique to them. It was their defining mark as the Jewish people, the people of God. And so God originally gave it to Israel as this outward sign of their inward faith. We've already seen earlier in this book, right, that, that when it started with Abraham, it, it wasn't really about what he did. It was about his faith. It was the faith that he had in God. And then after he had faith, God said, hey, I'm going to also have all of you do this as a reminder that you have a unique faith in the one and only true God. So it, that's how it started, but over time, as time, by the time we get up to Paul's day and age, it had come to represent something different. Now, circumcision was meant, by taking this on, you were committing yourself to the law. That if you took this step, if you took on this rite or this ritual, it was to say, hey, I'm going to obey the entire law, and that is how I'm going to be saved. That's how I'm going to get salvation, is by perfectly following God's law. And that's why he says here, if you do that, if you go that route, Christ is of no advantage to you, right? Because if you still have to keep the law to be saved, then his sacrificial death can't help you. It can't save you. It can't do anything for you if it depends on you keeping the law through circumcision. So he says, every man who accepts it is obligated to keep the whole law. See, the Galatians, they didn't, I'm not sure they even fully understood this because they, again, they were Gentiles, the majority of them. They just had these guys come in and say, hey, if you're going to really follow Jesus, you also have to do this thing over here. You have to have this surgery. And they were like, okay, we're just adding a little surgery. That's not a big deal. Like, seems like a really big deal to me, but whatever. Like, they were just like, we'll just kind of add this on to the side. But what Paul's saying, no, no, it's not just an addition to Christ. No, no, it's a replacement of Christ. That to take this on is to replace the faith that you have in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. And so then, your only option is to perfectly keep the law. Which Paul already told us earlier in the book, none of us can do. So then he goes on, he says, if you do this, you are severed from Christ. Now, you know, Paul, he's using a little play on word here, right? That he's saying, literally, you're, you're cut off from Christ's saving work. 
that, that that's, that's gone because you're seeking to, to justify yourself. You're seeking your own self-righteousness that Christ doesn't count anymore for you. In other words, it's the same argument he's been making the whole book, right? It's got to be one or the other. It can't be both. You've got to choose. Are you going to be saved by your own works, by your own righteousness, by your own good deeds, or are you going to be saved by faith in Christ and his death on the cross for your sins? You've got to pick one. He says, but if you choose the other, then you've been severed from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. You have abandoned the grace of the gospel for the works of the law. Now, some people point to this verse in particular to claim that Christians can lose their salvation. That after we come to faith, they're like, look, it says right there. Like, you can have faith and then you can fall away from grace. That's losing it. But as we're going to see later on in this very text itself, that's not what Paul's saying. He's going to make that clear here in just a moment later on in the passage. What he is saying is that there are some Galatians who, when he was there preaching, they heard the gospel but they never truly believed the gospel. And therefore, at this point, by following this other teaching, they're falling away from the message of grace. Not the work of grace in their life, because they never accepted that. They never believed and received the gospel. They just heard it, and now they're saying, well, I think I found a better, a better option. I'm going to go this way instead. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 talks about this. John writes, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So he's making the argument like, hey, if, if they leave the church, if they leave the faith, it just shows that they were never actually in the faith. Because if they were in the faith, they would have stayed in the faith. He goes on, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all, that they all are not of us. This is something I think a lot of people wrestle with even today in the church is that sometimes there are people in the church who say that they're following Christ, but in reality, their heart still believes that they can do it on their own. They still believe in a, a religion of good works and good deeds and earning their place with God. And they, they think that they're a Christian. They, they think they're saved. They might even look like they're saved because they've been around church for a while and they've learned how to to, to blend in, they act like it, they talk like it, they look like it, but, but they're not. And Paul says, if they choose to leave, if they choose to follow something else, they prove that they never were. They need to lay down their religious works, they need to lay down their deeds, their, their pride in their own heart and say, I can't do this. I need Jesus. He says, you have fallen away from grace. And then he contrasts this group that is following this new teaching that's walking away from the gospel. He contrasts that with himself and other true believers. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So again, notice he says we there. He's changing the tone. So now he's including himself in this group, right? We, like those who are like Paul, who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he says. They've been declared righteous in the work of Christ. He says this has happened through the Spirit. 
See, the Holy Spirit is like the down payment on our righteousness. At the moment of faith, we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ, right? Because God sees us through Christ's perfect life. But we know, if you've been saved for even like 10 seconds, <laughs> that although we're declared righteous in in actual behavior and actual thoughts, we're not righteous yet. We're still sinners. And so the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our righteousness. He comes and he lives inside of us and he starts changing our heart and changing our minds and starts helping us live more and more righteous like Jesus Christ. We call that progressive sanctification. That he takes us step by step, day by day, making us more into the image of Christ, waiting one day when Paul says we will wait and we will see the hope of righteousness. He's pointing here to eternity, to to the life beyond this life where we will finally be in God's presence and made perfectly whole and perfectly righteous. We'll finally receive in fullness what Christ has promised us in salvation. But notice he says here, we ourselves eagerly wait. We wait for it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We don't add some things to Jesus and to faith to to complete our salvation or to complete our righteousness. We eagerly wait for it to be completed for us in the work of glorification as he takes us into his perfect presence. That is the hope of righteousness, the final fulfillment that Christ's perfect sacrifice and the Spirit's progressive sanctification will finally take us to utter perfect righteousness in the place, in the presence of God. He goes on, he says, because we wait for this, he says, in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. (laughs) He's like, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Have the surgery, don't have the surgery. It doesn't matter. The external doesn't matter. The internal matters. The faith, the heart that we have for the Lord. That's why he ends, he says, only faith working through love. Our faith in him, through his love displayed for us on the cross, faith, our faith working through his love is what guarantees the hope that we have that one day all things will be made right. And we will be righteous and perfect in the presence of God again. None of our hopeless works on this earth can ever achieve that. There's nothing we can do. Only Christ can do it. And so our hope is in him. We are freed. This is where the freedom comes in. We are freed from trying to do it ourselves. We're freed from trying to do what Christ has already done for us and only that he can do perfectly and we are free to put our hope in him instead of in ourselves. I was reading a story this week, and it was about a pastor who was, he was teaching a, a children's Sunday school class one time. And he walks into the class, and he, he wanted to kind of test the kids a little bit. And he said, all right, kids. He says, if I went out today, and if I sold my house, and I sold my car, and I had a big garage, so I sold all my stuff, and I gave all my money, everything I have, to the church, he says, would that get me into heaven? 
And the kids all said, no, 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 no. He said, okay, okay. He's like, how about this? He's like, what if, what if I came in every day and I cleaned the church and I mowed the lawn and I kept everything neat and tidy and I, I did all this service every day. I used everything I had to serve the Lord. Would that get me into heaven? Kids answered again, no, 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 no. He said, okay, how about this? And he says, what if, what if I was kind? I was kind to all the animals and I gave candy to all the kids and I loved my wife and I was, took my my, my kids on vacations, and I was, just, I, was, I was a good father and a good husband. I was just kind to everyone. Would that get me into heaven? The kids said no. So now the pastor's like, okay, maybe, maybe they got a little bit more than I gave them credit for, right? Like maybe they have uh, a little bit more knowledge than I realized. He says, so he's like, then you tell me. He's like, how, how can I get to heaven? And one little boy in the back said, you got to die first. Not wrong, um, unless Jesus comes back. You know, most people in our world today are petrified of death. Petrified of death. Because most people in our world today don't have any hope that there's something better beyond it. Those who are irreligious... They have no idea where they're going to be in a million years. No idea. They, they, didn't, they think this is just it. And then you have those who are religious, but religious without the gospel, and there's some other way, and they think they have to earn it. And they live in this constant fear and anxiety that maybe I haven't done enough. That one day I'm going to die, and I hope, not in this sense of the hope, but in the worldly sense of the hope, I I, I, I can only wish that I've done enough to earn my spot. But they never really know. And they live in constant fear and anxiety of what's going to happen on the other side of death. Only Christians. Christianity is the only religion in all of the world that gives us an assured hope perfect righteousness in the presence of God for all eternity after death. It's the only one that we have to look ahead and because of this hope, because of this assurance that we have that we will be with him, it gives us a freedom in this life that we no longer have to live with guilt over our past sin. We no longer have to deal with shame. We no longer have to live in fear or worry. We no longer have to carry those burdens because we know that we already are assured in Christ that we have a place with God in heaven. We have that hope in us. A hope that no matter what I've done, no matter what I've done, no matter what you have done, that you have a future that is guaranteed with God. Only through faith in Christ. The hope of Christ frees me from hopeless works. That's the first freedom that Paul shows us here. The second one picks up in verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Second freedom Paul pulls out here is this. The truth of Christ frees me from false thinking. The truth of Christ frees me from false thinking. He starts off, he says, you were running well. This is a, an analogy that Paul uses oftentimes in the New Testament to describe the Christian life is running a race. He's like, you started off good. You started off, you were running well, you were, you were believing in faith, you understood the gospel, you were following Jesus, you started well, but then something happened. He says, someone hindered you from obeying the truth. Now, a really interesting phrase here, he's equating there obeying the truth with running well, right? But notice, see, it's not just about believing the truth. He doesn't say that you started off well because you believed some things or because you knew some things. He also doesn't say that you started off well because you obeyed all the rules and the morals and you were a good person. No, he says you started off well because you obeyed the truth. That first you understood the truth through faith in Jesus Christ and then you obeyed the truth because of your love for Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. But they have to start they have to get going in the right order. We can't believe in ourselves and do the right things and then just add Jesus to the end of it. He says, you started well because you obeyed the truth, but someone has hindered you. He said, in this persuasion, this false teaching, he says, it's not from him who calls you. In other words, this, this is not from God. It's from men. Which is the very definition of false teaching. When men teach the opposite of what God says. And he says, worse yet, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, another analogy here from Paul. Think about, leaven is another word for yeast. Think about yeast in dough, right? You only need just a little bit of yeast in dough, and pretty soon it grows and it spreads and it multiplies through the entire lump. He says, false teaching is just like that. Oftentimes, it starts small. It seems like it's not that big of a deal. It's just this one little thing that we disagree on or this one little difference. But pretty soon, it starts to grow and grow and spread until it gets into everything and everyone. And you know why it spreads so easily? Because it appeals to the sinfulness of our own hearts the same reason that when you turn on the news it's all bad news right it's all bad because what sells that's what people want to see that's what people want to hear that's what because that's what they'll talk about that's what they'll spread because there's something that appeals to us in that sinfulness of our flesh and the same thing is true with false teaching it tells you what you want to hear and so your heart craves it and you bring it in and then it starts to spread quickly through the rest of the people Paul's saying, like, listen, this is serious stuff, guys. We got, we got, to, got to put an end to this now. Again, but then he kind of turns a corner. Now he speaks to those who are in the church that are truly believers. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He's like, I know there's false teaching. I know you've been led astray. I know some of you are thinking 
falsely about these things. He's like, but I trust. I have confidence in the Lord that he will bring you back, that he will correct. You see, those who have truly believed in Jesus, they've received the Holy Spirit that we talked about earlier, like Paul mentioned. And he says, I I know that the Holy Spirit, he will lead you. He will teach you. He will convict you. He will correct you to get you to the truth of God if you are truly one in Christ. Paul knows that they're secure. But that doesn't mean that their thinking doesn't still need to be corrected. Sometimes even those of us who are walking in faith in Jesus Christ and are truly saved, we can still get our minds off into false thinking and believing lies. And the word of God corrects us. And brings us back. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, and he says, the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty. He's like, just as, uh, just as I am assured that God will bring you back and get you to the right place, I am also equally assured that he will take care of these false teachers. That he will punish them for their deceit and for their, their lies. And we have, a, we have a saying around here that we use from time to time. Truth and time go hand in hand. Truth and time go hand in hand, meaning over time, God's truth always wins. In the moment, it might look like things are off, it might look like the, the, the devil's winning, that the lies are winning, but in time, the truth always rises to the top and God's word always stands over everything else. Paul says, I know, I have confidence that God's going to handle this. He's going to get rid of this false teaching, he's going to bring you back He goes on, then he says, but if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? So he's addressing here a false rumor that was started by these false teachers. They were like, well, actually, Paul believes this too. He believes the same thing that we believe. He just didn't get a chance to tell you before he left. All right? So he would say the same thing. And Paul's like, no. (laughs) What are you talking? He's like, that doesn't even make any sense. If I still taught that salvation was by the law then why would they be coming after me? Why would they be persecuting me? Why would they be trying to change my message if I agreed with them? It doesn't make any sense. He says, furthermore, it would remove the offense of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is an offense to the human heart. I think sometimes if, we, if you've been a Christian for very long, if you've been in the church for a long time, sometimes we forget this, because through Christ, we come to love and cherish the cross, but to the greater world, to those who are without Christ, the cross is an offense to them, because in our natural state, the human heart actually craves the law, and here's why, because the law tells me, you can do it, you can do it, just work harder, be better, change some things, you can get there. If you just do enough, you can get there. In our heart, our evil, wicked, sinful hearts, we love that because it feeds our pride. Yes, I can do it. Me. I can be in charge. I can be God. I can be king. I can do it. The law feeds that in us. Where the cross says, you can't do it. You can't. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't just be a better version of you. 
You can't get there on your own. And our heart hates to hear that. Because it crushes that pride. It crushes that in us. And we, we hate to admit our sin. We hate to admit our helplessness. That we're not good enough. It's an offense. But friends, on the other side of that offense is freedom. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is looking ourselves in the eye and saying, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I have rebelled against God. Yes, I have violated his word. I deserve punishment. I deserve wrath. And I can't fix it. And God says, you're right. You can't. Let me do that. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth be born as a man, to live a perfect and sinless life, and then to go to the cross and give his life for us, to die for our sin, to pay for our guilt, to do what we couldn't do, and to give us the gift of salvation. And he died on the cross, and he went to the grave, and three days later he rose back to life, proving that he was God, and saying, if you will just admit, if you will just confess your helplessness, your sinfulness, that you can't do it and put your faith in me, I will do it for you. We can't do it, but Christ did do it and has done it. And if we believe in that truth, that truth sets us free. Any other teaching, any other religion, any other thinking is false. And it actually enslaves our minds to the lies of Satan. To the lies of sin. To the lie, which is, I don't need God. I got this. That's the lie of all lies. And Paul, he can't stand it. He can't stand this lie. And so he says, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. I know we don't want to deal with that line, but we got to. It's in the Bible, okay? Paul's just like, hey, listen. He's so riled up. He's like, fine. If circumcision, if you believe that that's the way you get there, then just, you know what? Just go all the way. Just do, just go, just do the whole thing, and you, then you'll really be worthy of God, right? If that's all it takes. Paul's using a little holy sarcasm here, okay? It can be redeemed. I know some of us, we're, we're questionable on that, but it can be used in the right way. Paul's like, listen, this is ridiculous. This is nonsensical, fictional, false thinking. He says, don't fall into that bondage. Don't believe those lies. Stay the course. Finish the race. Truth. This past year, our youngest daughter, um, Ava, she started running cross country at her school. She's third grade, so they're pretty small. And so uh, we, it was always it was fun getting to watch the kids, you know, grow in their abilities and athleticism over the season. But one of the things I noticed is that almost every race, there would always be some kids that, man, as soon as they started, they would go, like, all-out sprint, right? This is like a mile run, and they were, like, all-out sprint for the first, like, 200 meters, which was great for the first 200 meters, and then they'd fall off, right? They'd run out of gas, they couldn't keep going, didn't have enough, and they would start well, but they, but they didn't finish well. 
That's the picture that Paul's giving us here. And a lot of times people, that's what happens at church. They come in, they hear the gospel, they're like, yes, this is what I need. They believe in Jesus, they believe in grace, they're looking for answers, they're looking for truth, they're going in full steam ahead. But then they start listening to some other voices. They start letting other voices of false teachers speak into their hearts and their minds. Sometimes it's false teachers in the church, unfortunately. Sometimes it's false teachers outside of the church, in the culture, that are speaking into their lives. But they start to doubt God's word. They start to doubt the gospel. They think that maybe something else sounds a little bit better. They start to think that someone else knows better than God. That there is some other truth beyond what Christ says. But it's a lie. It's a lie masquerading as the truth. In fact, it's the original lie. If we go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve, the first lie, the first sin was when Satan came to them and he said, hey, you know what God said about that tree? Isn't true. What God said isn't true. Just trust me. I have a better way for you. Just go ahead and have some. It'll be great. And then they took a bite. And when you bite, you find out it's not better. It's worse. And worse. And worse. And it leads to darkness. Darkness and brokenness. And death. It leads to bondage. And pretty soon... Your false thinking has imprisoned you to the lies of the enemy and to the lies of your flesh. Thankfully, Christ's truth of the gospel never expires. And it never gives up. And it never goes away. You just have to return and listen to it. You come in here for an hour and a half once a week and you hear the message of the gospel through our music. You hear the message of the gospel through the preaching. Maybe you're in small group for a couple more hours. But if that's all you get, if that's the only voice of God you're hearing throughout the week and meanwhile you're hearing all the other voices of our culture and the news and work and friends and family and if you're letting all those other teachers speak into your heart and your head more than God is, you're going to fall into false thinking. We all would. So we need the truth of the gospel to bring us back. You can still turn back in repentance, no matter what it is, no matter what you've been thinking, no matter where you've been walking, you can turn back in repentance and you can be free again if you believe the truth. The truth of Christ frees me from false thinking. Frees me from false thinking. That's the second freedom. The freedom of our minds. And there's one more that Paul touches on. Take a look at verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The third freedom Paul touches on here is the love of Christ frees me from selfish love. The love of Christ frees me from selfish love. He starts off again here. He reminds us again, you were called to freedom. Freedom is what you get with Christ. He's like, but don't misunderstand what that means. You see, some will say that the freedom that we have in the gospel, that it gives us this, this, the grace of the gospel gives us this freedom to sin. That I can sin however much I want. I can sin however much, it doesn't matter because God's just going to forgive me, right? And as long as God will forgive me, I can, I'm not worried about it. And I have this freedom in that. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's, you, you, you misunderstand. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You see, the freedom that Christ gives, it is not a freedom that is all about me. That kind of freedom where it's all about me is actually just bondage in disguise. It's a bondage to the flesh because it's all still focused around my heart, my desires, what I want, me, me, me. And you become a slave to the sinful desires that you cannot control. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Practices, the word practice there means like continues to go back to it. Right? That's what you do when you practice. Like if you're practicing a sport, you do it over and over and over again. He's like, the heart that wants to continue to just go back over and over and desires just to keep living in that, because you're a slave to that. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus died for. That's not what he frees us for. We are saved for a freedom from sin, not a freedom to sin. He says, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to serve yourself, but through love serve one another. The word love, we define it around here like this. You be for me. That's just a simple, like, that's what love is. Putting others before yourself. You be for me. Sounds a lot like a servant, doesn't it? Right? Putting the needs of others before my own. In fact, the word there where he says serve one another, through love serve one another, the Greek word there actually means more like slave. To submit to someone at that level where you're sacrificing yourself in order for them, for the good of them. He says use your freedom to be a slave out of love. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus had absolute, perfect freedom. Living outside of space and time, living in eternity with God the Father and the Spirit, just being God. And yet he chose 
to give up that freedom and to come to earth and live as a servant to serve us and to go to the cross and sacrifice himself to save us. That's the picture of Christian freedom. True Christian freedom actually produces service, not selfishness. Just like our Savior. Paul goes on, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, hold on. Didn't Paul tell us earlier in this letter that we are free from the law? Right? That we, don't have to, like, we, like, we don't have to do that anymore? So now why is he telling us to fulfill the law? By loving our neighbors. Well, we have to discern here the difference between we are free from the law to earn God's love. We cannot earn God's love through the law. But we are not free from the law to show God's love. Once we have faith in Christ, we are still called to follow him in his word and in his ways to show the love of Christ to others. Right? This is our mission. This is our purpose. This is the whole reason that we're still here. If we didn't do this, if God didn't have this for us, the moment we got saved, he would just take us straight to heaven. Why leave us here on the earth? It's for us to be on mission and showing the love of Christ to others. The whole purpose of our freedom in Christ is so that we can freely love Christ, freely leave other freely love others like Christ loved us. And so if you think that the gospel, if you think the freedom that you have in the gospel is a license to love yourself or love your sin, you don't get it. I love you. Glad you're here. You don't get it. The gospel is about receiving the sacrificial love of Christ and then giving the sacrificial love of Christ to others. That's what we're free to do. Paul then hits it one more time here at the end. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That is not the language of a loving family, right? That's not the language of loving others. That's the language of like wild animals. That's what they do, right? They, they bite and they devour and they consume one another. They, they live off instinct, and they have to survive, and they look out for number one. That's, what, that's the way they're wired. Paul says that's not loving. That's not Christ-like. That's not the gospel. The love of Christ frees me to love others more than myself. To put them first, sacrifice, to serve. See, our modern day concept of freedom is very selfish think about the language that we use to talk about freedom in our country this is my right you can't stop me i have the right to do this i get to do whatever i want you can't tell me not to this is my freedom it's all about me it's very very selfish we make freedom all about us we think that the purpose of freedom is to serve our wants, serve our desires, serve us. But that's not the type of freedom that Paul's talking about. That's not the freedom that Christ gives us. When we put our faith in Jesus, we receive his full, unconditional love, unconditional approval through faith, which means 
I no longer have to fight for myself. I no longer have to look out for number one because Jesus is looking out for me. Because Jesus loves me, because Jesus takes care of me, because he is the one. I don't have to do that anymore. And so now I can focus myself not on being trapped in this cold, dark prison of self-love. That is one of the biggest lies in our culture right now is that you've got to love yourself more. Self-love is a prison where it all turns in on me and nothing else good comes of that. He says, no, no, you've been freed by the love of Christ who loves you perfectly so you can turn around and love others with the love that you've received. That's the gospel. Christ used his freedom to serve us because he was perfectly secure in God's love. He laid down his rights as a servant of love for us when he went to the cross. Friends, that is the call of the gospel. This is what it looks like to live the gospel in our lives. Not just believe it, but live it. We are freed to be servants of love. Christ sets me free to live for him. To live for him. It's not about me. It's about him. Faith in Christ gives us the freedom that we can't find anywhere else. Freedom to hope in the assurance of the glorious eternity beyond this life. Freedom to walk in truth instead of the lies of this world and being held captive. Freedom to love without pretense because we are fully loved and secure in Christ. True freedom only comes through Jesus Christ. He has set you free so that we can follow him. Stand with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you God for our time together today. Thank you God for your word once again. Thank you for freeing us from being slaves to our sinful hearts, for freeing us from being slaves to the sinfulness of this world, God. You've broken us out, Lord, and we believe that true freedom only comes through you. But Lord, we need your help. Lord, help us, help us to walk in that freedom. Help us to walk in hope and in truth and in love. We trust only in you, Jesus. We trust in you and your amazing grace that sets us free. We pray all of this in Christ's name.